0: Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to you all, and I say to you all because all of you mothers and all of you children have husbands and fathers, and uh, what a blessing it is that God has arranged the family this way, that God is our Heavenly Father and that He's given us earthly fathers to reflect His glory in the home, and so uh, this morning, happy Father's Day to all of us, for our own fathers and for those of us who are fathers. Um. I will be preaching this morning a little bit of a different kind of message than I normally do. I usually like to go through a passage um, in one sermon. I'm going to go through a lot of the New Testament this morning, and so we'll be maybe flipping a little bit in the Bible, in the New Testament especially. Uh, yesterday, my son-in-law Jacob asked me, I think it was yesterday, asked me if I preached the same message every time you know, we're on ministry to different churches around the country, and he asked me if I preached the same message, and I said no. I don't do that. Um, I preach whatever I happen to be working on at the time. Uh, so if I'm preaching through a particular book of the Bible, I will preach from that. And the last few weeks I've been involved in what's called the School of Church Planting with my mission board, Baptist Midmissions, And we're focused mostly on church planting here in the United States, but because my wife and I have been missionaries in Cambodia for a long time, um, my contrib- contribution to the, the School of Church Planting is the cross-cultural church planting uh, dimension. And so uh, the message that I'm preaching this morning comes from one of the first workshops in that, that I was asked to preach to really orient what is the work of church planting and church revitalization, what is the foundation of it, what is it that makes it possible even to plant a church in the first place and to establish discipleship in local churches. And that topic is the gospel. And so that's what I'm going to be preaching about this morning one thing I didn't do when I came up here was decide whether I should use my glasses or not. I'm at that age where these kinds of questions matter. <laughs> so maybe I'll have to hold things up a little bit. I'm not sure. but <clears throat> The reason I want to preach to you this morning about the gospel is there's not really clarity about the gospel in our culture. I teach regularly at a seminary on evangelism and missions and evangelism is the name of the class. And at the beginning of the class, we have all the students tell us in in a forum, what is the gospel? And the two professors, I co-teach it with a friend of mine named Dan Seeley. We go through each of these and we read them. They have to interact with one another, and we get all different kinds of answers. Um, Are you talking about the gospel of Paul or the gospel of Jesus? I mean, some people think there might be two gospels that way. Um, a gospel of the kingdom or a gospel of salvation? We hear these sorts of things. When you look in the Bible, you see what may, may indicate different kinds of gospels. You have the gospel of God in Mark 1, Romans 1, and First Thessalonians 2, or the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew, uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God in Luke. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ or of our Lord Jesus. Or the gospel of Christ, which seems to be Paul's most favorite way of referring to it is the gospel of Christ. But then you have other ways of referring to the gospel. The gospel of God's grace. The gospel of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. The gospel of salvation, Ephesians chapter 1. Or the gospel of peace, Ephesians chapter 6. Are there a lot of gospels? Is there one gospel? And this became a very critical issue for my wife and I serving in Cambodia. Why is that? Well, you know that the word gospel means good news, right? Some people approach this like this. Well, what is the good news from the Bible for Cambodians? What seems to be good about the gospel to Cambodians? Now, is that a fair question to ask? I think in a sense it's a fair question, but what does the answer to that question tend to do? it places the culture of the Cambodian people over the gospel and says, what do you find in here that's good? And like all people, Cambodians can't help but look at the world through their own culture. What is their culture? Their culture is Buddhism. And so they merge ideas from Buddhism, either ideas about the Buddha himself or ideas from the teachings of Buddhism and they mix that with the gospel. And so I had a young man tell me once that When Buddha achieved nirvana, that was the same thing as when Jesus Christ was resurrected and ascended to heaven. I have seen regularly the portrayal of Jesus Christ in the body postures that Buddha did when he was meditating to achieve enlightenment. Because Jesus taught his disciples in Galilee, I have seen Jesus portrayed as a philosopher, which is the way they think about the Buddha, and the issue of sin. They deal with the issue of sin from the perspective of karma. In other words, good deeds or bad deeds based on impersonal laws that have nothing to do with God because Buddhism teaches that there are no spirits, there's no creator. All things came to being on their own. And so to do a bad deed has nothing to do with offending the creator. So this is a very natural thing for us to do. We tend to look at the scriptures through the lens of our own culture. And then that lens shapes what we see in there and we do this things that seem important to us, we really emphasize those things. Things that we don't understand, we tend to overlook. We just pass on over those things, pay less attention to them. And I really want to address that issue this morning. What is the gospel? Is there a gospel? Are there many gospels? Uh, John Piper back in 2010, many of you know the name John Piper. He was at a conference, and somebody asked him the question, what is the gospel? He said, the gospel is summed in three words, justification by faith. And then he went on to say that Jesus preached the gospel once in the four books we call the gospels, and that was in Luke, get my reference here, chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the publican, where at the end of the parable, Jesus says, this man went home justified rather than the other. Because the publican was beating on his breast and saying, Oh God, I am a sinner. Another pastor, this is an account I have read. I don't know his name, but apparently he's very popular, very commonly heard on radio stations today. Was in an airport and somebody that knew who he was walked up to him and started a conversation and asked, What is the gospel? And he said, Justification by faith. The person asked a follow-up question. Did Jesus preach the gospel? And the guy thought for a minute and he said, no, he couldn't have. Nobody understood the gospel until the resurrection. Is that true? We have four books called the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to John. And in those, Jesus is preaching what is called a gospel, And I want to focus on what that gospel is. And my goal this morning is to show you that there is not three, four, five, ten different gospels. That the apostles and the writers of those four books are unified in what the gospel is. And so I want to begin with this. What is gospel in the first place? Let's just take away the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's just remove that for a moment and talk about what is gospel. What is the concept of gospel? What does the word mean? And more importantly, how was that word used when the Bible was written? Okay, so we're talking about a day and age where people didn't get their news from social media. I mean, that's the way most people do today, right? They get on social media, they get on Twitter, they get on Facebook, they get on something else, and they they find news articles and they read them. And then you go back a little further in time and you have television stations. I guess we still have those, right? We, We still do. Uh, Don't watch it anymore, but you know, we used to have, we used to get our news through television and through newspapers, and now newspapers have migrated to social media because they have to to survive. And before that, we even had radio. A lot of people got their news from radio because they didn't have a television in their home. Some of us remember those days. I don't, I wasn't born yet. But let me ask you a question How did people get news in the centuries before the last couple? You ever think about that? How did people get their news? Let's go even way further back than that. How did people get news in a day with no technology where every nation on the planet was a kingdom? How did people get their news? They got their news through a messenger or what we would call a royal herald. And that news would pertain to the kingdom. It was kingdom news. Now, as I just mentioned, gospel means good news, right? But the way it's used in the Bible, the way that word was used in ancient societies, and this includes the Old Testament, the way these words are used, does not necessarily mean good news all the time. It almost always means kingdom news. It is the message. What's a messenger in Greek? angelos, right? That's the message, angelion, being carried by an angelos, pronounced as a euangelion, the same root word. All these root words work together, and they have to do with kingdom news. So if you're reading along in the Old Testament, and let's say you're reading in Greek, you see these same words used in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the Amalekite supposes he's giving David good news about the death of Saul, and, and David says, you thought you were giving me good news. And then What, what is that David had done to him? David has him killed on the spot. Second Samuel chapter 18. There's a tremendous play on words with this very word, euangelium, the good news. The news, the kingdom news that's being delivered happens to be the defeat of the king's enemies. In this case, it's Absalom. Did David take that as good news? No. You end the chapter and he's weeping. Absalom, oh Absalom, my son Absalom, would that it had been you, and not, or me and not you. But in both of these cases, we're talking about kingdom news. And that's the way these words were used outside of the Bible as well, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Gospel is primarily kingdom news. And other kinds of information, other kinds of news was delivered in different ways using different words. But when we're talking about the context of gospel in the Bible, we're talking about messages relating to the kingdom that are being delivered by a royal herald about the kingdom. It could be the birth of the king's son. It could be his ascension to the throne. It could be the king's exploits in battle and his victories. And I was, just, I was just kind of sitting here smiling as we went through the worship service because some of these ideas were portrayed in the songs we just sang. So the gospel is, first and foremost, kingdom news. And that presents us with a problem. What is the problem with that? By show of hands, how many people in the room have ever lived in a kingdom? Jacob for about three or four months, Julie and I for about 13 years. Anybody else ever lived in a kingdom? So what's the problem? What kind of problem does this pose for us? It's hard for us to relate to these ideas because things like authority work differently in kingdoms than they do in a democracy. I'd like to get to that point, but I'm having a problem with electronics. I love them sometimes and I hate them others. Okay, here we go. I want to contrast for you, on the one hand, democracy, and on the other hand, monarchy. How is this different? Well, we know very well in democracy, we elect politicians. Okay, We don't elect kings. We elect politicians. The authority lies with who in this system? It lies with the people. And that authority is delegated to a person that we usually call a representative. And that representative serves the good of the people. In fact, we would often call a representative a public servant, right? What's it like in a monarchy? How does a person become a leader in a monarchy? Do they get elected? Do the people choose him? How does he get his authority? By birth, by blood. He is of the royal bloodline. Folks, this is the way the entire world was prior to a few hundred years ago. Every single nation on the planet was a monarchy. Leaders were not elected. Leaders were born into the royal family and coronated. And their rule and reign was absolute. There was no questioning their authority. In fact, in our country, to reduce corruption, we have divided authority in three ways. We have three branches of government, right? Which one makes the laws? The legislative branch. Which one decides cases based on those laws? The judicial branch. And if those laws are breached, which one enforces those laws? The executive branch. And the executive branch wages war. All of those functions are rolled into one man in a monarchy, and his name is the king. He is the king. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across the word judge, don't imagine something like you know some guy wearing a black robe in a courtroom. No. Think about a king sitting on a throne deciding cases. The word of God is the legislative branch. It is God's decree. He is the executive branch waging war, delivering and saving his people from their enemies, from his enemies. And he is not called the public servant. No, everybody from the highest official in the king's court all the way down to the lowest beggar is called the servant of the king. The king does not exist for the good and the glory of the people, but the people exist for the good and glory of the king. And these, you can see I'm trying to portray these ideas as, as opposite. They are so different. It's not what we're used to. And like I was just mentioning a moment ago with Cambodians, Buddhism shapes their perceptions of the gospel in certain ways. They don't see Jesus as king. They see him as a philosopher because that's how they view Buddha. And sometimes we have that same problem here. We use these words a lot, but because they don't really connect with our daily experience in life, we can sing about Jesus being king. In fact, a moment ago, the king of kings and the Lord of lords just means one king over every other king, Psalm 2. And sometimes we have a hard time connecting and relating to those ideas so that's what gospel is gospel is a message relating to a kingdom or about a king a concept that we find difficult because it's very different than our daily experience and now i want to ask this question what is the message of the four gospels what is the message of matthew mark luke and john and i'm going to summarize for the sake of time matthew I'm sorry, the Gospel of Mark opens with this. The Gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Luke uses this phrase frequently. The Gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Matthew changes it a little bit. He calls it the kingdom of heaven, meaning the very same thing, because who is in heaven? God. So the Gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom. Do you see that? It's the proclamation by a herald of kingdom news. Let's think for a moment about the opening of Matthew and Luke. When do we normally preach through the chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew and Luke? What time? Christmas. These are the Christmas chapters, right? And they're all about the birth of the the king, right? So in these opening narratives of Matthew and Luke, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is portrayed as the king promised in the Old Testament. You see these phrases repeated over and over again in Matthew Uh, According to the prophets, according to the scriptures, in the opening of the book of Luke, you see these um, different, they're not all speeches, but you see the song of Mary, and you see the the prophecy of Zechariah the priest, and you see Simeon and Anna, and they're all talking, and in fact, the angels themselves are declaring that this baby or this child is the Christ that was promised by God in the Old Testament. And then you have Jesus, I would call it his his baptism, I would call it his anointing, as Peter says in Acts chapter 10. Jesus was anointed in the desert by John the Baptist. In a scene that's not so unlike what happens with Saul and David in the book of 1 Samuel and Solomon later, where they're anointed by a prophet. And after being anointed, what happens? The Spirit of God comes upon them. And so David always refers to Saul as what? The Lord's anointed. He says in in 1 Samuel 25, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What he means by that is, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's king. And so we come to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John, who is what? John's a prophet, right? And as he's coming up out of the water, there's a voice from the heavens. And the voice says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now I want to look at just a couple of things. Let's turn to um, Psalm 2. I've already alluded to that. Psalm 2. And I want you to see here these words used in parallel. And I'm going to emphasize them as I read along here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Yahweh God, and against His, what? Anointed. Okay? If you read this in Greek, you would have just come across the word, across the word Christos or Christ. Against the Lord's Christ. That's what Christ means. Christ means the, the person that God has chosen and sent the prophet to anoint. He is God's anointed. What? Let's keep reading. They come together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3 Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set what? My king on Zion, my holy hill. So God's anointed, the Christ, is what? God's king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are what? My son. Do you suspect that might be a royal term? Let's talk about the Davidic covenant for a moment. In Second Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a house for God. God says, no, you're a man of bloodshed. You will not build a house for me, meaning a temple, but I will build a house for you, meaning a dynasty. And he says, after you will be one of your descendants, one of your seed. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The word son there doesn't mean that merely that Jesus is subordinate to God the Father. The word son of God means that he is God's chosen and anointed king. Just as it is earlier. These are Hebrew parallels. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's king, and now his son. And what is the son going to receive as his inheritance? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And this is where we get that phrase, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This Son of God will inherit the entire world. And he will reign over it as one king over many nations. And now flip forward in your Bibles to... Daniel chapter seven. Daniel seven. And we'll look in verse 13. This is Daniel speaking. "I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of what? a son of man." This is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels. The Son of Man. Is this a royal figure? And he, that is the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given what? Dominion. That means authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now I've gone just a little bit beyond my point, but that my, my main point here is this. That when Jesus of Nazareth went down to the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptized him, you hear this voice, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased And as the kings of old in Israel's history, what happens immediately after that? The spirit comes down upon him and moves him. Just like with Saul, just like with David. And so the Gospels portray Jesus as king at his birth, as promised in the Old Testament scriptures. The Gospels present Jesus as king at his anointing in the the desert by John the Baptist. What else? The next major point that the synoptic Gospels all have in common is the transfiguration. Where Jesus and three of his disciples go up on the mountain. And they hear a voice in the clouds saying what? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's move ahead in the Gospels. We get to Jesus' trial. Why is he on trial? What is he charged with? The last question by the high priest Are you the Christ, the Son of God? What does Jesus say? It is as you have said it, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power. What is Jesus claiming there in his trial? He is, in fact, the King. Remember those questions on Pilate's lips? Are you the King of the Jews? Are you a King? depending upon which gospel you're reading. At Jesus' crucifixion, what is the charge on the plaque over his head on the cross? The king of the Jews. How is Jesus portrayed after the resurrection? Matthew 28, Jesus says to his disciples, all, what? Authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples. Jesus is the king. The gospels from beginning to end portray Jesus as the king that has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. What about Paul's gospel? Is Paul's gospel different than this? I would go through, if I had time, Acts chapter 13, because you have Paul's first sermon there that you see very clearly. It's just completely laid out, but we don't have time this morning. Let's take a look here at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul begins his letter this way. And by the way, he ends it this way because there are parallel verses in chapter 16. They're kind of bookends that bookend the entire content of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ, that is God's anointed king, Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Paul's going to explain in the next two verses. The gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Is that different than what we just reviewed in the four books we call Gospels? No, it's not. The gospel, can, the gospel is promised beforehand by God through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3. What does the Gospel concern? What is the Gospel about? What does it say? Concerning God's Son. That's a royal title. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. What does it mean that Jesus was descended from from David? What's the point? Isn't that the very same point Matthew and uh, and Luke are making in their genealogies? He is the legitimate heir to the throne. And there were many heirs to the throne in the sense of being a son of David in that day. Probably thousands of men could have said, I am a son of David. But not all of them were the king. What proves that this man, Jesus Christ, is the king? Paul explains further in verse 3. I'm sorry, in verse 4. Let me read verse 3 again. According to uh, Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is what proves that this man, Jesus, is the Christ. It's not just that he's the seed of David. God has raised him up. I would encourage you to go back and look at Acts chapter 13 and see how Paul lays that out and brings in Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 to show that this man Jesus did not see corruption. And then he adds these words. Jesus, that's his name. Christ, that's his title. God's anointed king, our Lord, another royal term, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so you see Psalm 2 again, kind of in the background of Paul's thinking as he goes through these few verses. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes this, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, a descendant of David, according to my gospel. That's Paul's gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's take a look at that for one moment. 1 Corinthians 15. Probably one of the most frequently cited passages in the New Testament concerning the gospel. He says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, my brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, you uh, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you had believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for sins. What are the next four words? According to the Old Testament Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul's very concerned in Acts 13 and Romans 1, according to the Scriptures. And this is not the end of what Paul is saying here. We usually stop there. I've already asked, what holiday do we normally preach from Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2? You said Christmas, right? On what holiday do we normally preach from 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection day. Because this chapter is all about the resurrection. And so if we've stopped here, we've kind of like stopped Paul from finishing his argument. Nope, don't say anymore. Let's just talk about Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's just talk about that. No, let's not. Let's let Paul finish. He's going to talk about how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to our faith. And he's going to come down to the end here around verse 20. And let's start there and read this together. But in fact, Christ, see who he's starting with? Christ. Has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each its own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he, that is Christ, delivers what? The kingdom, up to God the Father, those royal words again, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus could not be the promised King of kings and Lord of lords if he could not conquer death. And that's why it's so important. He did rise from the dead. He did conquer death. And when every one of his enemies is below his feet, he is going to deliver the kingdom, the entire world, every kingdom, every nation, every ruler, up to God the Father. Again, I think Psalm 2 is in the back of Paul's head because he's using the words, my son, God's son, and inheriting the nation's. I have more to say about Paul, but I have to stop there for the sake of time. And now I want to get down to the question, the question of the whole sermon. What is the gospel? I would say there are some things we can't overlook. Number one, the gospel is firmly rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we've just seen that, right? Through the books we call the gospel, through Paul's explanation of the gospel, both in Romans one and Acts uh, I'm sorry, both in Romans one and First Corinthians 15. The gospel is rooted in God's promises in the Old Testament. Number two, I'm going to borrow Paul's words in Romans one. The gospel concerns Jesus Christ. It concerns the Son of God. The gospel demonstrates that this man Jesus, is the Christ promised in the Old Testament. And the gospel portrays Jesus as crucified for sins, according to Isaiah 53. That he is the resurrected Christ, according to Psalm 16. And that he will rule eternally over all of the nations, according to Psalm 2, Daniel 7. I had many passages in Isaiah that I had to overlook for the sake of time. The New Testament gospel is the proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament concerning the Christ or the Messiah, that he died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead proving that he is indeed the Son of God, that he was exalted to the right hand of God, Psalm 110, to rule eternally over all the nations. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Now, I'm, I'm preaching this way to get down to a point, and that point is this. In our urgency to get someone saved, we often skip the New Testament content of the gospel and get right to the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is not a wrong thing to share with somebody, but we go right to that, urging that person to make a decision. Sometimes the way we present the gospel is shaped by our own culture. It can sound like a political campaign. I'm going to show you all the benefits Jesus has to offer, and then I'm going to ask you to choose him. Or maybe a marketing campaign. What are the benefits Jesus has to offer you? And believe me, brothers and sisters, Jesus does have benefits to offer everyone. Reconciliation with God being the chief among them. But remember, in the New Testament, the gospel begins with who? Have we been fair with the gospel if we preach justification by faith, which is part of it? If we preach the plan of salvation, and at the end, the person has no idea who Jesus Christ is? Have we just asked them to trust and believe on somebody they don't know? Let me ask you this. Jesus Christ came in God's will to reconcile the world to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. Colossians one twenty two. If you were estranged from your mother or father, estranged from a friend or a peer, would reconciliation to that person be the same as reconciliation to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords against whom you've been rebelling? You see, the gospel calls for a response. A very clear and specific response. And you see this in the book of Acts repent. You have been in rebellion against God your maker who has established this man to be your king and you must repent of that rebellion. I can't let Cambodians go on thinking that karma is the way it is. It's about your rebellion against God. It calls people into a right relationship with a king which is why Paul says in Romans 1 verse 5, For the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, faith in a king involves submission and obedience. And so in our evangelism, we must call them to the same. We must do it like I would say the apostles did. Look through the book of Acts and you will see that they are proclaiming Jesus Christ as king and then calling men to repent. And that makes sense. You stop the rebellion to a king that's called repentance. So I want to end with some thoughts about what the gospel means for the church and for discipleship. First of all, If I give somebody the plan of salvation or teach them justification by faith, but they have no idea what Jesus is, I've been unfair to the gospel. I have not preached the gospel the way that the apostles did, the way that the evangelists that wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. They proclaimed Jesus as the Christ first, called men into repentance. Second of all, if they've made a decision to repent and believe in a person they know nothing about, just so they won't go to hell, they don't understand what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is about submitting to the King in everything. The church is about making disciples and teaching them everything that he has what? Commanded. Uh, recently in a conversation with Ben, we, this common phrase, what you win them with is what you win them to. If we approach them with a gospel that explains all the personal benefits to them, when they come to church, what's their perspective of the church going to be? And they're going to come to church that satisfies their desires, meets their felt needs, and they're not going to understand that the church's role is to make them a disciple of the king. And this is a big problem in our culture. This is why at the School of Church Planting we put this first. We want to establish churches based on the authority of Jesus Christ and not the felt needs of the people that hear a gospel. And I want to end with this. When we were working in Cambodia, we just had to completely abandon this notion that the gospel could be shared in a 15-minute 15 15 conversation or in a 30-40-minute in a sermon. Can't be done. They have no background in the Old Testament scriptures. Where is the gospel rooted? It is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, fulfilling God's promises. And so evangelism for us became literally a six to eight week series of lessons that involved the people in the church and the unbelievers. And the reason we did that was so that people in the church could learn how to share the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures with people on their own. It took us hours of discussion and opening the scriptures, going literally. We would go literally from creation to Christ so that every Cambodian that heard the gospel from us had the content and the context to understand and obey it. And I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that in our day and age here in the U.S., this culture is getting so far removed from the gospel and from the scriptures, that we need to do the same work here. So I'm going to close at that point. But my my final, my final final invitation to you is this. I have kind of like given you the fire hose experience, right? I don't want you to take my word for it. I trust that every believer here in my hearing regularly reads the Bible in their devotions, I would encourage you to go back, starting with Matthew, read through the New Testament all the way through the book of Revelation, and look for the things that the gospel is saying about Jesus the King. Remember, we have a tendency to de-emphasize them because they're not part of our daily experience, they're not part of our culture, they don't seem important to us, they are critical to the gospel. I would encourage you to read through the four gospels, read through the book of Acts, Read through Paul's epistles. Read all the way to the, book of, the end of the book of Revelation and see what the apostles and the evangelists said is the gospel. And so that I will close. pastor was going to come up after I was done. Oh, there he is back there.
1: want to close us with a word of prayer and then Matt's going to come and lead us in in a song and we'll be dismissed. That was an important message. I hope you listened carefully. There was a lot there. Was that? I don't care. You can clap. The important truth there is this. We do not elect God. He elects us. And he has said in his word what? I was thinking in this as, as Mike was preaching, because if you confess with your mouth, what the Lord. The Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. It tells us in First Corinthians fifteen, you can believe in vain. And you believe in vain if you believe in a mental health therapist in the sky that's just going to make your life good. That is vain faith. The faith that saves is if you confess with your mouth the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ. We long for the day when you send him again. Dismiss us with your love. Change our hearts, O God. In your name, amen.